We're continuing on in Matthew chapter 21. In the... uh, Kind of the immediate aftermath of the the triumphal entry, which, again, we will address in in a few weeks, April 2nd. We'll come back to that. Uh, Last week's sermon ended up being a a lengthy introduction to this passage. We looked at the tabernacle in the wilderness, uh, the fact that at the dedication, the the cloud that had led them settled over the tabernacle and the glory of God filled the place to the point where Moses could not go in. Uh, We looked at the first temple built by Solomon, planned by David, paid for uh, largely by David, and saw then uh, there again that at the dedication, the cloud of, of God's presence and uh, his glory so filled that place that the priest could not enter. We saw that at the, the end of the life of that first temple in the book of Ezekiel, the glory of God lifts up from the holy place, it moves to the threshold of the temple, and then from the threshold of the temple to the eastern gate and departs. And at that point, God was no longer home. God was no longer resident. Um, I, I can't show you that the glory of God never came back because you, you can't prove something that isn't said. But we never see the glory of God return in the way that it came to the tabernacle and to the first temple. That second temple, uh, begun by Ezra, not really completed until... Uh, the uh, until about 66 AD, huge project by Herod the Great and carried on by his sons, uh, resulted in, in a structure that I, I think would have been far grander, far more impressive than Solomon's temple. They simply had hundreds of years to build on it and to add to it and to make it huge and impressive. And it was certainly the place for Jews to go and worship and pray and to offer sacrifices. But uh, it was just an empty shell. That's what I said last week. It was just a preserved memorial. It was a a little bit of fascinating history. It was the uninhabited house of God. Until Jesus takes on human flesh. And the glory of God dwells in the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus. And he dwelt among us. The same thing is said of Jesus that is said about the tabernacle and the first temple that the glory of God was beheld. Jesus then uh, is brought into the temple on the eighth day of his life to be circumcised, to be registered. He came in multiple, multiple times during his life. Jesus literally is the God-man, the incarnate son of God, Yahweh dwelling with his people. And, and it's... In that, in that role that Jesus enters the temple after the triumphant entry to cleanse it and to challenge the abuses of the temple. As I pointed out last week, Jesus, when he entered Jerusalem this day, did not go to the, the palace of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and demand the throne as the rightful king to Israel. He went to the temple and said, this is my father's house. And of course, at that time, that made it his house. And so we, we kind of begin with what Jesus finds there. He entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. 
and overturn the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who are selling doves. Now this happens at the end of Jesus' public ministry. At the very beginning of his public ministry, John writes this in John 2. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned those tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. It's interesting, this, this takes place right at the outset of Jesus' public ministry, and another similar event takes place at the end of his public ministry, as though we've got these bookmarks that show his superiority to the temple and the proper use of the temple, and the fact that the people at the time, uh, so many of them had no respect for the temple at all. It's not the picture that many people have of the Lord Jesus, uh, of being kind of kind of small, kind of wimpy, kind of timid he's he's so sweet he's so gentle there's no toxic masculinity there he wades into the temple early in his ministry and rolls up his sleeves the scourge that he made was a scourge of cords now a scourge was a whip made of multiple strands a, a true scourge that scourge then would have bits of bone and metal tied in at the ends that's what they whipped jesus with before he was crucified he didn't tie the ends he didn't tie those bits of harmful things to the ends but he still ends up with something that he's holding in his fist full of multiple strands and he drives these people out of the temple not just away from their their seats he drives them out now just so you understand the the temple the temple mount is a a space it's not quite a true rectangle but it's approximately 1600 feet long and 900 or a thousand feet wide the southern half of that was called the the court of the gentiles and that's where all of this business took place when jesus drove them out again he he wasn't driving them across the street he was driving driving them out of a very large space and doing so in a in a forceful way We need to understand what's happening and why it's a problem. Every Jewish man had to attend the three major feasts. And, and one of these days you'll be saying it along with me, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Every Jewish man had to attend those. Many of them brought their families, and it was a time to see family and a time, frankly, around those feasts to conduct business in Jerusalem. Um, during those feasts, the annual temple tax would be paid. That was your opportunity to pay that tax. And multiple sacrifices would be offered. Not only the Passover lamb that was being killed. Uh, by the way, it, it's thought that the population of Jerusalem swelled to maybe half a million or more during Passover. The law allowed one lamb to be shared among ten people. So even if we maximize the, lamb, the, the number of people sharing the lambs, that's 50,000 lambs being slain in a couple of days at the temple, many of which were being sold there at the temple. There were restrictions on the money that could be given. The temple authorities called for silver Tyrian half shekels. A shekel is a unit of weight. So I can't remember, but it's so many grams. So a, a silver tarian half shekel 
was the only thing that was acceptable for the annual temple tax. That's not according to the law of God. That's according to their customs. And animals that were brought for sacrifice had to be without blemish. They couldn't have any, uh, any signs of disease or infection. So many are coming from outlying areas. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit comes upon the apostles and they, they speak with tongues, it says that of the various people who heard them speak, um, it, it's an area that ran from Rome to Libya to Iran. It, to get a scale of it here, it would be the western two-thirds of the United States from Seattle to Chicago and border to border. It's a big area covering a number of nationalities, a number of languages, a number of customs, and a number of currencies. Most of the people coming would not be doing business with Tyrian half-shekels. And so they had to exchange the money. And the, the money changers then did what money exchanges do today. They would change your Parthian money or Roman money or Egyptian money or Persian money for acceptable money, and they would charge you a fee to do that, and then they would give you the exchange rate, and that doesn't mean that they would necessarily give you a fair exchange rate. So they're getting rich off of these people. And then there's the animals that are being brought. Now, if you live in Bethlehem just a few miles south of Jerusalem and you're going to bring a lamb, you just bring your own lamb. If you're coming from, from Capernaum where Jesus lived and, and many of his disciples lived, it's a 70 mile, uh, about 70 miles as the crow flies, but of course they weren't crows. They had to walk, and it's probably 100 miles. And you may not bring animals with you. You might, but you may not. You may just choose to purchase them in Jerusalem, which was fine. And then, of course, you have people coming from Rome, from what we would know as Turkey, from uh, northern, northern and southern Iran, from Arabia, from Egypt, from, from Libya and Tunisia in our time, who are not going to bring animals with them. They're going to buy them there. That's not wrong. It wasn't wrong to sell acceptable animals for sacrifices, but they're doing this in the temple, in the court of the Gentiles, which is the largest open area available. That place would have been filled with all of the sights and the sounds of an ancient market, with, with all of the haggling that's still common in the Middle East and Asia. Linda and I had the opportunity to visit Penny in China a number of years ago, and Penny took us to a, a, a silk market, to this large market. And uh, I, I bought a... a I bought, I bought a friend a fake Rolex. I, I knew it was a fake Rolex. And they wanted, they wanted 50 for it. They just, they just hold up a calculator and punch in 50. And, I, man, I was raring to go. And I put in five. He was not happy that he puts in 20. And I put in eight. And I, I, I got my buddy a fake Rolex for 12 bucks. How do I know that it was fake? It, the back wouldn't come off. The little crown wouldn't rotate. It looked right. It just was completely non-functional. Linda bought some silk scarves. And uh, she's looking for the price tag, bless her heart. There's no price tag. So one of, one of Penny's Chinese friends, a believer, 
said, oh, I hate this. I just hate that you have to do this. I, I just hate that. And the next thing you know, she's in there with this woman selling the stuff, going back and forth, and Linda's really embarrassed. She's turning beet red because of all the, but see, this is what they do. This is happening at the temple. You come in as a Gentile or as a Jew to pray. Jesus says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You come in to pray, and all of this is happening right where you're trying to pray. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Jesus there is quoting from Isaiah 56. Now, there are various offerings that took place. Uh, There are burnt offerings. Let me just give you the list. Burn offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings, peace offerings, thank offerings, vow offerings, free will offerings, wave offerings, heave offerings, sin offerings, uh, and, and guilt offerings. And then there are subdivisions among those. All of those offerings were designed to allow you as a sinner to come before God with your sins covered and pray. And pray. When we see the idea of worship, It was not an hour of dancing and singing. It was prayer. It was petition. It was intercession. It was laying your needs out before God. That was worship. The house of God was to be a house of prayer. So Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56, starting at verse 1. Thus says Yahweh, keep justice and do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come and my righteousness will be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner, the Gentile, who has joined himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. I'm a Gentile. Yahweh will surely separate me from the Jews. Don't say that. Yahweh doesn't say that. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. I have no wife, I have no children. For thus says Yahweh to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also the foreigners, the Gentiles, who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to him and to love the name of Yahweh, To be his slaves, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and takes hold of my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain, that is Mount Zion where the temple was, and make them glad in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. That's Isaiah. That's 700 years before Christ. Gentiles have a right to go to the temple and bring a sacrifice. Now, by the time the first century comes around, there's a court of Gentiles, and they can't go further into the temple than that. But that's not Old Testament. That's Jewish custom. We're going to keep the Gentiles as far away from the tabernacle as, as, as we can. That, that whole complex is 1,600 feet north to south. So they stand on the south end, and they look to the north, and they see the tabernacle 90 feet high, standing out. You can't miss it. The only thing higher is the Antonia, the palace of, of Pilate, which looks down on it. And they can see the smoke of the, of the sacrifices rising from that, that huge altar that was there. 
at the temple and they cry out to God, they pray and they worship. And they do bring animals, they do bring sacrifices and somebody meets them and they they watch him take that sacrifice over here and down that corridor and around here and then it disappears and at some point it's in the smoke. Where you as a Jewish man, you go, you lay your head on it and you see the priest cut the throat and you see the priest take this animal and lay it on the altar in your name. The faithful Jews and Gentiles alike are coming to the temple. They're coming to have their sins covered so they could pray. Women are coming after the birth of children to offer the sacrifices for for babies and first sons and dedications. Those whose hearts are heavy with grief come to lay their sorrows before God. Couples come to have their marriages blessed by God. Those who've prospered come to give thanks and share their blessings. Those in the grip of poverty come come to cry out to Yahweh in their need. Because this is a house of prayer. And as you and I and Gentiles do that, we can barely hear ourselves think because of the cries of the merchants and the customers and the haggling and the animals. And so Jesus says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. He's quoting from the Old Testament again, this time Jeremiah chapter 7. He says there, behold, you are trusting in lying words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear while lying, and burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called my name, and say, we are delivered. That you may do all of these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a robber's den in your sight? Now, the picture that, that you might have, the picture that I have when I read these words, the, the first thing that I think of is people are coming full of faith and full of need to the temple to pray. They're coming to the place they've been told God will hear them. And as they come in, they're being ripped off. They're being robbed and they're being abused and they're being misused. And that's certainly happening. But there's more to a robber's den than that. A robber's den is not where robbers go to rob. A robber's den is where robbers go to be safe after they have robbed. I found out just reading because I like reading on stuff like this. There's an old robber's den up by the Missouri River. It's called Devil's Nest. Back in the early 70s, it was turned into a ski resort for a couple of years. Didn't last too long, I don't think. But back in the day, men like Jesse James and Frank James hid out there. If you look at it on, 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 on maps, just look at the satellite picture there south of the, the Missouri River, a little bit east of Santee. You, you just see the, these hollows up and down. It's like, man, if somebody went in there and hid, they'd be awfully hard to find. Butch Cassidy... His gang was called the Hole in the Wall Gang. They were named after a famous hideout in Wyoming called Hole in the Wall, which was a, a, a canyon that was hard to get into and easy to guard. That's a robber's den. It's where you go after you've robbed to be secure from, from the consequences, to be safe from judgment. Jesus says that the merchants and so many others are treating the temple of God as a robber's den. They see it as a place to escape God's justice. 
They were thieves and murderers and adulterers and liars, idolaters, the men who violated the Ten Commandments without fear. They didn't then come to the, ten, to the temple to be cleansed and to be forgiven. They didn't come to confess their sin and be made right with God, who is gracious and kind and patient. They came because they believed if they were in the temple, Yahweh could not touch them. The temple, the tabernacle, was always meant to be a sanctuary for sinners. They turned it into a sanctuary for sin. And they just, some of them may have even been thinking to themselves, as long as I'm in this place, Yahweh is powerless. He's not powerless. He knows the difference. And Jesus walks in that spring day. And turns everything upside down. <coughs> in, in a different context. He says to the Jews. I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. And he's referring to himself. He's infinitely greater than, than the temple. In his conception he was infinitely greater than the temple. The fullness of God dwelt in Christ in bodily form. And if you compare Jesus standing there on the Temple Mount with the sanctuary, of course you would say the sanctuary was grand. It's going to last hundreds of years because you couldn't see what was true about Jesus, that he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. God is present with us in him. The Lord Jesus now, not a man-made temple, is the sanctuary for sinners. But he's never a sanctuary for sin. The tragedy of those who, who made the, the temple a robber's den is that it was the place where they could have had hope. They could have had hope of having their sins covered and their worship and their prayers accepted. They, they stood and, and did their business every day in the place which offered them hope of forgiveness and transformation and eternal life, and they exchanged it for profit. Psalm 84 says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And David says, I would choose to stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of, of wickedness. I would rather stand here on the doorstep than be comfortable in a tent of wickedness. But for these men, the temple had become a tent of wickedness. Jesus is infinitely greater than the tabernacle or the temple. The glory that filled him was infinitely greater. And what should be mind-boggling to us is not only that our sins are not just covered but taken away, but that we don't simply join ourselves to Yahweh. We become, in Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about the church, we should never say, this place is the church. We should say, we are the church. We are the church. Not this place, not this corporation, not this building, not this address. We are the church. But changing the focus of God's house from a particular place to the Lord Jesus or to a particular people doesn't change the core of the message. And that is we must never treat God's house as a sanctuary for sin. It is a sanctuary for sinners. It's the place where we can have hope. 
but it's never the place to defend our sin. There, there are terrible things that are happening in the name of Christ and have been for a long time. The prosperity movement has turned the church into a profit-making venture. These wolves prey upon God's people and cheat them blind. It's hard to get numbers, but the last numbers I saw say that Kenneth Copeland is worth somewhere between $750 million and a billion dollars. Somewhere, somewhere in there. A billion dollars. The money that's given is not given to fund evangelism or the gospel. It's given to fund a lifestyle. The LGBT plus movement has rooted itself into progressive mainline churches. They did that years ago. But God have mercy, they're making inroads into formerly conservative churches now. And all of them view God's house, the church, and the presence of Christ as a robber's den, a place where they can say, here, I don't have to fear the judgment of God. I can do whatever I want. But for you and I, we've got to be aware of the more secret, subtle sins in our own lives. The secret sins, the hidden lusts, the private attitudes of judgment and superiority, the undercover things that we covet and we refuse to confess. We know this. We know, beloved, that no sin can keep us from Christ. But we also know that no sin is safe from his judgment. If we will confess our sins and trust in him, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we defend our sins, if we coddle it, if we justify them, then we fall under his judgment. If we do that as believers, and we can do that as believers, we've all done it to some degree, we lose his earthly pleasure. We lose the peace of our relationship with him. We find that Jesus is just not satisfying. Here's the problem, of course. Once we've been brought to Christ, once we've been born again, the world isn't satisfying either. And so the disobedient Christian is, is, a, is a, a person without a country. They have no place to say, this is where my heart is content. This is where I'm home. The Spirit of God has pulled them out of the world and they don't belong there anymore. And then they spend that time arguing with and fighting the, the presence of God and his holiness and his body. By his grace, we know that Jesus will not throw us out. And I've known people who, who th- their attitude is, it doesn't matter now because I can't lose my salvation. And that's true. There are people who will say we have to be careful not to take the grace of God for granted. I think we have to take it for granted. I don't think we can comprehend what it means. We certainly can't pay him back. We can never deserve it. To some degree, we have to take his grace for granted. And yet, if we simply presume upon his grace, which we all do at some point, we rob ourselves of the fullness of what it means to know him. 
And there are people who say, but I've got, I've got eternity coming. I've got presence with Christ coming. I've got heaven coming when I die. Okay, that's awesome. That's wonderful. What about today? Do you have joy today? Do you have peace today? Can you sleep today? Can you rest your heart in him today? When the crisis hits, when the tornado hits, when the bomb goes off in your life, do you know in your heart that you can immediately go to him for comfort? Or when you go, are you embarrassed because you've been holding yourself back? You see, there's a reason beyond salvation to obey the law. Linda and I knew a, a man in California he had such a oil and water view about the law and the gospel that his view was anything in the Bible that has to do with the law is old covenant, has nothing to do with me today. I'm saved by grace. The only concept he had of the law is that you would only keep the law to be saved, and we're not saved by the law, we're saved by grace. So the law doesn't matter. And if that sounds bizarre to you, this is even worse. He would go through the gospels and look at what Jesus said and say that sentence is the law. It doesn't apply to me. That very next sentence is grace. That does apply to me. Think about the schizophrenic mindset of somebody who can only conceive of the law as being a means of salvation. The law has never been a means of salvation. Adam did a wonderful job of emphasizing that this morning. We've never been saved by keeping the law. We obey because we love him. We obey because in Christ being regenerated, we start gaining this ability to live in obedience and to live in faith. One of the great gifts that we have in Christ is to be able to know God as Scripture presents him. Here are some of the statements in Psalms. By the way, if you ever want these references, you can just take your phone and take a picture after the service. But David and others in the Psalms extol Yahweh as my strength, my rock, my redeemer, my help, the God of my salvation, my deliverer, the help of my countenance. I I love that. The help of my countenance. He, He makes me look better. The God of my strength, God my exceeding joy, the sustainer of my soul, my stronghold, my refuge, my fortress, my loving kindness, my shield. If we want to be able to say those words from the the depths of our heart, then we need to be willing to confess and repent and recognize Jesus as a sanctuary for sinners and not a sanctuary for sin. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the love that you have for us and giving it to us. I lift up my brothers and sisters. We all find ourselves in a a unique place today. Some of us might have hearts that are clear before you. And we rejoice in that. We rejoice that we can receive your joy with gladness some may have hearts that are afraid because they've been concealing things 
and I ask that you would convince them from your word and by your spirit that there is purity and sanctification and justification and complete forgiveness in Jesus Christ, that our God is a sanctuary for sinners, <coughs> but never a sanctuary for sin. Help them recognize that their sins want to kill them, that the world wants to kill them, the devil wants to kill them. There is no friendship there. There is no wiser path than we can walk than humble confession with you and receiving your forgiveness as you have promised it with joy and confidence. As David prayed, Lord, daily restore to us the joy of our salvation. We thank you for this day. We ask your blessing upon us as we go. In Jesus' precious name, amen.